This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, is the resurrection the most remarkable event in world history? My guest today is Aaron Boyd. Aaron is pastor of Darabin Presbyterian Church, a church which meets in Thornbury in Melbourne's north. Before pastoring this church, Aaron worked for the University Christian Group at La Trobe University in Bandura. Aaron loves watching sport, running, hiking, reading, eating good food and drinking good coffee. Please welcome Aaron Boyd. Thank you. So Aaron, you love watching sport, eating good food and drinking good coffee. Now, if you had to make a choice between the three of those, which one would it be? Yeah, tough call. Uh, very tough call. But I think, uh, I think that coffee and watching sport are more in the luxury category. Uh, food, well, certainly food by itself, uh, I, I'd have to pick food. But you say eating uh, good food though. So. Good food's not absolutely essential. Yeah, okay, right. just, just something to sustain me, but I do like some good food. So, so you like your... I mean, you're forcing me to choose between three quality things. Right, so, okay. Yeah. And if you could good do them food. all together? That would be my preference. Right, uh, A okay. latte while having some pizza or something while watching the footy. Yeah. You said good food and you, yeah. you chose pizza. Enjoyable food. Enjoyable food. Yeah. Okay, enjoyable food perhaps is perhaps the way of describing good food. Now, you're a pastor of a church, Darabin Presbyterian Church. Now, people here or listening may not quite know what goes on inside a church. Could you tell us a little, little bit what goes on inside your church? We see church as a place where you can get to know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And like any person, uh, the way to get to know Jesus is by listening to his word and responding to his words, uh, just like any kind of conversation. And so basically that's what we see our church service as. Uh, There's opportunity to listen to what Jesus had to say uh, in the Bible and as someone gives a talk uh, explaining the Bible. And then we respond to what Jesus has said by singing some songs, saying some prayers. So that's the general shape of of what we do. So in many ways this series, Encounters with Jesus, is consistent with what you do we're hoping that setting. every Sunday when we meet, people have an encounter with Jesus. That's, yeah, that's our aim. Terrific. Now, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Aaron Boyd about the most remarkable event in world history. So I thought we'd test you on remarkable events in world history. Now, apparently, you've studied some history. Yeah, a fair while ago, but we'll see how we go. But you weren't studying specifically for this quiz, were you? No, that's right. Right, You okay. probably picked some obscure things. Well, we'll see. Anyway, this is what we're here for, a bit of fun. Anyway, so which of these remarkable but true coincidences was voted most incredible by our scientifically conducted Facebook poll? Was it? Why is people laughing? That's right. It was scientifically conducted as everything at the City Bible Forum. Was it A, in 1975, a man riding on a moped was struck and killed by a taxi driver in Bermuda? One year later, his brother was driving the same moped on the same road and was struck and killed by the same exact taxi driver and they were both even carrying the same passenger? Or was it B, three men were hanged in London at Greenbury Hill in 1911 for the murder of Sir Edmund Berry. The names of the people being hanged were Green, Berry and Hill. Or was it C, while on a business trip in the 1950s, Mr. George D. Bryson stopped and registered at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. After signing the register and being given his key to room 307, he stopped by the mail desk to see if any letters had arrived for him. Indeed, there was a letter. The mail girl handed him an envelope addressed to Mr. George D. Bryson, room 307. Now, this wouldn't be odd, except the letter was not for him, but for the room 307's just previous occupant, another man named George D. Bryson. 
Or was it D, the final option in these extraordinary coincidences, a woman in Gwent who had spent years trying to track down her long-lost brother was amazed when she discovered that he lived across the road from her house. Uh, she said that I'd only known him for three months, she commented, but I thought they were very nice. Which of these was the most extraordinary, as voted by our scientifically conducted Facebook poll? Well, I did see these things on Facebook. I didn't see the results of the uh, scientifically conducted Facebook poll. Yeah. But when I saw the uh, the different scenarios, I thought that A seemed the most remar- remarkable. But the moped... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we could try it out live audience. Does anyone want to... Anyone... Any hands for A? Any votes for A? We've got a couple of hands. Anyone for B? One. Yes. Okay. You're alone. Anyone for C? Or D? Well, actually, the correct answer was A. Congratulations, oh, Andrew. Yeah. Big round of applause. Yeah, that's right. Now... Full marks. Okay, on some random internet list, which of the following was not considered one of the 10 most important historical events that changed the world forever? Was it A, the World Trade Center attack on September 11, 2001? Was it B, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria in 1914, which led to World War I? Was it C, the invasion of Poland by Germany in 1939, precipitating World War II? Or was it D, the two goals Tim Cahill scored in the final 10 minutes against Japan in 2006 to give Australia its first ever World Cup win. Uh, so which of these was not one of the 10 most important historical events that changed the world forever? Yeah, I'd say that Tim Cahill's goals weren't world-changing. They <laughs> <laughs> were perhaps nation-changing. Right, or nation-defining. <laughs> That's or, right, but, but perhaps not world-changing well, in the same way as the other... The other ones the other perhaps ones there, been, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the correct answer is actually D. That's right, okay. it wasn't actually Tim Cahill, even though it was an important event. So, Aaron, in our Remarkable Historical Events quiz, you got two out of two correct. A massive round of applause for Aaron. <laughs> You must have done well at history. Yeah, yeah, at all university. that studies paid off. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how remarkable do you think an event needs to be before it changes the world? I would think that there's different criteria that you might measure it by. Mm-hmm. The extent of the, of the change that it causes, uh, the longevity of the change. So it yep. might have a particular impact for a couple of years, like, mm. um, but not kind of... A, longevity of the change and perhaps like the number of people so the uh, scope of the people around the world and the sheer number of people and the longevity of the mm. change so that's so probably why Tim Cahill's two goals well yeah that's what I impact it was a massive event for a few people yeah, yeah. the Japanese probably weren't particularly they, weren't that they, were, they, were, they were impacted by it now that Tim Cahill's playing closer to that part of the world right. they might be more excited about yeah, it but, yeah. Yeah. but whereas World War Two, World War One, and yeah, September so. 11 they really have changed the world yeah. in a very different way so yeah. what other events are there in world history that you think have changed the world forever? I think the invention of the printing press, mm-hmm. just the dissemination of information mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, from my perspective, the kind of people having access to the Bible, uh, just the average Christian going to church, being able to get access to God's word and being able to read mm-hmm. that, 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 that's been a dramatic change. What about uh, the invention of Coca-Cola? Do you think that's a, one that's changed yeah, it's the probably world? in the same category as Tim Kale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, well, it's obviously had a big impact. Yeah, uh, I think like in a similar way uh, to the printing press, like the invention of the internet has been phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms of access to information and ideas and um, connecting people in a sort of more globalised world. Mm-hmm. So that's been incredibly significant. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you already mentioned 9-11. I think 9-11 was incredibly significant in terms of changing how we, uh, how we think about global warfare uh, about how terrorism works, about our own safety and security, all mm. those things are kind of 
lifted up, pulled back the curtain on some things that were probably already there, but mm. just kind of in your face mm. uh, in a different, in a new and different way. Yeah. yeah. Now, as part of bigger questions, we also reflect on the Bible because, surprisingly to many, it offers answers to the big questions of life. But before we do that, we're interested to hear about why you believe the Bible is worth following. So, Aaron. What convinced you to become a Christian believer? Yeah, I was uh, raised in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, uh, it's hard for me to pinpoint when I actually became a, a Christian believer. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think what happened for myself was that I knew in a general sense that Jesus had died for people's sins, uh, that he'd been raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't understand that he died for my sins. So I didn't have a real sense that I was a sinful person and that Jesus needed to die for me in my place on the cross and that he needed to be raised for me to give me hope of eternal life. So that happened, I would say, when I was 16 years old at a, at a Christian youth convention. Right. Well, okay. Um, yeah. And I believe that you had a crisis of faith when you were studying philosophy and history. Tell yeah, that, happened, yeah, that's what right. What happened there and what, what resolved it? Yeah, so I was doing an arts degree at uh, La Trobe University. So is this where um, you got the coffee... Habit, the coffee. And the I good started food, developing. Was it? Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I don't mean to be too offensive to, yeah. to the arts graduates. That's yeah. right. Lots of time for coffee when you're doing an arts degree. <laughs> right. And, uh, and um, I was studying philosophy, and one of the one of the things that really, um, I guess, disturbed my faith was I had a lecturer, uh, who a, a philosophy lecturer, who identified as a Christian but who was a pluralist. Uh, and so he would openly sit those two things together. I'm a Christian, but essentially all the religions are the same. Mm-hmm. And we really just have to pick which path seems true to us. And that, that was completely new to me. And, uh, and, and it was the kind of commonly accepted view of pretty much everyone in my course. And so at that point, I had to work out why it was that I wanted to be a Christian. At the time, I was really giving myself to going to church, to running a youth group, to uh, serving in in all sorts of different ways. It was taking up lots of my time. And I thought, Mm -hmm. if this is just one of many options, why would I give so much of my life to it? Mm -hmm. And so what I did was uh, read a bunch of history about the reliability of the New Testament. And and for me, the the kind of historicity of Jesus' resurrection was the key thing. Mm. And so I uh, read a a book called The The Case for Christ. I read a book called Is the New Testament History by Paul Barnett. Uh, I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis for a kind of making sense of Christianity. Does it make sense rationally? And um, and all those things together helped me to decide that I actually thought that Christianity was the the truth, Mm. capital T truth, Mm. put it that way. Well, we're going to think about exactly that now. For the part of the Bible we're reflecting on today comes from the New Testament book of John, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. And, And in this passage here, a woman, Mary, has an encounter with Jesus which changes her life forever. Uh, Her encounter involves three things, which is the impossible, the rational, and the personal. So first, the impossible. When John 21 says, early on the first day of the week, whilst it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So what do you think Mary was expecting when she went to the tomb that day? Yeah, I, I mean, I think she's expecting to find Jesus' body. Mm-hmm. Um, Still dead. 
Still dead, that's correct. Uh, in fact, in Mark's account of these events, uh, it, it actually says that Mary and the other women with her uh, were coming with spices to anoint Jesus' body. Uh, so they were assumed this was the, like the third day after he died and, and this was part of Jewish tradition was to come and anoint uh, the, the body as a way of honouring the body. And so her assumption is that he would be dead, that they would be anointing his body. And, and when the, of course, when the body's not there, her assumption is that someone's stolen the body. <laughs> It was someone's, yeah. he says that someone's taken, taken the body, the body. Yeah, taken the body right. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So why wasn't she expecting a miracle? Yeah, I think because uh, for, her, uh, for her own reasons within her own worldview, Mary was just as close to the idea of a resurrection as you or I might be, or a modern scientific person might be. Do you want to unpack that a bit? What do you mean, what yeah. was in her own worldview that meant that she couldn't expect a resurrection? Yeah, well, in the culture, within Jewish culture, there were some Jews who believed in the idea of a resurrection. There were some who didn't believe in uh, the idea of a resurrection of the body at all, mm-hmm. uh, the Sadducees. Uh, many Jews believed in the idea of the resurrection, but it was a general resurrection at the end of all time. And so the idea of a single human being being raised from the dead right in the middle of history was completely foreign to them. It wouldn't have been part of their worldview at all. They Mm. they were close to that idea. And that's in spite of the fact that throughout the Gospels, Jesus predicted that he was going to be raised from the dead at least three times explicitly. Mm. And it just shows how closed they were to hearing that. Uh, It just didn't compute with their existing worldview. Mm. Even in Greek and Roman culture, uh, the body was considered uh, to be evil. Uh, Salvation was about a escaping the body. Mm. Uh, and so in, in the kind of cultural world that they were swimming in, uh, there was no idea that there would be a resurrection from the dead in the middle of history like this. Of an individual. Of an individual, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's often said that ancient people were just kind of superstitious, believing magic, miracles and powers. I mean, weren't they, wasn't she just gullible? Yes, I, I wouldn't have thought so, Rob. Uh, uh, like, uh, I mean, even... In Mary's day, uh, when people died, they they usually stayed dead. <laughs> like that was um, it's fairly, you know. Has like else had that experience. Just yeah. wondering, just asking our live audience like, if anyone has an experience of someone who died and they think, oh, actually, they aren't dead anymore. That's yeah. not happened to anyone. No, there's a few shakes of the head. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, yep, fair enough. People in Mary's day may not have understood uh, all of modern medicine or science as, as we understand it, uh, but they certainly knew uh, when a body was dead and they expected Jesus to stay dead, and they were. Uh, for different reasons, but they were very close to this idea of a mm. resurrection from the dead. It wasn't an expectation. Yeah. Questions just come in. You said the people in the ancient world had fairly negative views about the body. How should the resurrection influence the way our society thinks about bodies? I think that uh, well, certainly uh, the resurrection says that the body is good. Mm and that there's hope for restoration of the physical body and all of physical creation. Mm. Uh, I I think in our culture people value the human body. I'm not sure that Mm. there's the the same dualism between body and soul that existed in in a Greek or or Roman culture. But I think there's mileage for... uh, The resurrection uh, provides impetus for things like care for creation... Uh, or care for your own body, body physical exercise. Mm. Like it, it, it's an affirmation of everything physical. Mm. And so um, mm. it, it provides uh, more, I guess, foundation for those beliefs mm. that people might hold. Now, atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel once wrote, I want atheism to be true. I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. What do you make of Nagel's comments? Yeah, well, I think he's right. 
in what sense? When I was working out whether I wanted to be a, a Christian and, and really what was writing on that for me was that if Jesus is the only person who's ever been raised from the dead, then he has the right to tell me how to live my life. Mm. He's Lord overall, and and he has authority over me and my life and what I do with it. And that's something that all of us chafe against, isn't it? Like the the idea that someone else is going to be calling the shots for us and telling us how to live. And so I think uh, he's right in the the sense that we're all biased. um, If Jesus is raised from the dead, uh, it means significant change for us. It means someone else calling the shots and and having authority. And uh, we find that idea intrinsically difficult. And so we've got to acknowledge that when we're looking at the evidence. So let's go back to the, the other point that we're making about the, the strong and emotional and psychological reasons for why people would want to believe in God, but there are also powerful psychological and emotional reasons to disbelieve in God. So how do we overcome these biases? Well, I think, I guess the, the first thing would be uh, that if you are someone who's sceptical about the Christian faith, then you should be sceptical about the reasons for your scepticism. <laughs> You shouldn't assume that all your scepticism is because there's no evidence or because it's completely irrational. Or uh, you sh- I think you should think that some of my scepticism might be because if this is true, I'll have to change my life a lot and I'm mm. not sure I feel comfortable with that. <laughs> mm. And so, um, so that, that would be the first thing, uh, be, be sceptical of your scepticism. Uh, the second thing would be to say that uh, th- this is revealing that if someone's going to see who Jesus is and respond to him... God actually has to do something in the person's life. Uh, there's going to be a spiritual work happen to open their eyes, to m- move over those obstacles uh, to faith in such a way. And, and so if you are someone who's sceptical, I'd say, uh, why don't you try praying? If God is real, why don't you ask him to reveal himself to you and to open your eyes to, to look at this evidence in, in new and different ways? Mm. So the first aspect of Mary's encounter with Jesus was that it was impossible, that she wasn't really expecting it. Now, the second aspect of Mary's encounter with Jesus is that it is rational. So what's significant about the fact that Mary is the first reported eyewitness to the tomb? Very, very significant, uh, because in Jewish and Roman culture, uh, women were considered to be inherently unreliable witnesses. So a, a woman couldn't give testimony in a court of law. Well, they could, but it would be considered inadmissible evidence. And so it's significant in the sense that if you were sitting down to make up an account of someone being raised from the dead, uh, there's no way you would have a woman as the first witness because mm. that would completely discredit your account. And so it actually serves to, I guess, establish the, the truthfulness of this account. Mm. The only reason you would include that was if it actually happened, if mm. it was actually true. Mm. Yeah. So after her encounter with the empty tomb, Mary then goes to Peter and he reacts. And so it says, uh, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So what do we make of this? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, In Greek, uh, the language this is written in, uh, there are a number of words for the word saw. And uh, when John's writing this, he says when Peter saw the pile of linen in in the empty tomb, Mm -hmm. uh, it it uses a particular word which really means to reflect or or ponder on something. And so you can almost kind of 
hear the thoughts running through Peter's head. Here's this pile of linen in the empty tomb and, and he's thinking, oh, wait a second, if Jesus had sort of still been alive and put in the tomb and then just sort of come to uh, and ripped himself out of the grave clothes. Like, like Incredible Hulk kind, that kind of, of. Yeah, that kind of style. Uh, yeah. The banana man kind of. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the kind of strips of linen wouldn't have been so neat in a, in a pile. Right, they would right, have been ripped yeah. apart. So he already might have been thinking, oh, if someone, if, he's, if Jesus' enemies stole the body, uh, why would they kind of put the things in such a neat pile? Or, mm. or if maybe, some, maybe they were just really clean thieves. Yeah, maybe, maybe. that's right. Or, or if, some, if Jesus' friends had taken the body, why would they dishonour the body by taking it around naked? Like, well, why not leave it in the grave clothes mm. in such mm. a way? So, so, so there, there's evidence there to grapple with, I guess, if, you, yeah, if you're sceptical about this account. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, now, it's common in our culture to think that if you want to believe in Christianity and the resurrection, that's good for you, but it doesn't really matter if it didn't actually happen. If it works for you, you can believe it. How do you react to that? Yeah, well, I just think it reflects a particular view of truth uh, that our culture has, subscribes to, uh, which is that if something works for you, it's true for you. Whereas what Christianity has a, just, it has a different view of truth. Christianity says uh, Christianity will only work for you if it's true. Uh, it's got to be grounded in truth for it to be practical, for it to actually have impact in your life. Mm. And so I think it just reflects different understandings of truth. Mm. Mm. Now, the final aspect of Mary's encounter with Jesus here is that it is personal. After realising that the body's missing, poor Mary was in tears and she encounters a couple of characters around the tomb, one of whom is the risen Jesus. Now, counsellors know that it's not enough to simply tell people how to live. Asking questions helps a person recognise their errors, to discover and embrace truth from their hearts. So why do you think Jesus asks Mary two questions in verse 15? Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Yeah, well, I think he's, like you, you mentioned counselling before, I think he's trying to draw Mary out of mm-hmm. her current understanding. I mean, she's crying because she thinks, like, she loved Jesus and she thinks she's lost him. And, uh, and Jesus is saying, Jesus is trying to break through her grief uh, and draw her out to see, no, you haven't lost me, I'm alive. And so in a sense, uh, he's trying to break through and Mary's small view of who he is, that he's, he was a good man who I loved for a time, but now he's gone, <laughs> to see that actually you know, he's the risen Lord and I'm standing right in front of you as we speak. Mm. Uh, and so he's just trying to draw her out gently out of her grief in that way. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think then is the significance that the angels at the tomb ask exactly the same question in verse 13? Woman, why are you crying? It's, I think it's just reinforcing uh, the same the same idea. Don't mm. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to add. Oh, well, I suppose I was just point. looking at it. It says, they yeah. have taken my Lord away, she said. And so, and again, that re- he's, he's saying, why are you crying? Yes. Well, he's not here. Yes. And then so Jesus comes and asks exactly the same question, why are you crying? I am he here. He is here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm present. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Then she thinks he was the gardener and says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then Jesus says her name. Hmm. What do you think the significance of that is? Just yeah, says it's interesting. Mary. Just says Mary, yeah. Uh, back in, earlier in John's Gospel, in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus uh, says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep by name. Uh, and so um, Jesus knows Mary, his sheep. And calls her by name, and it's at that point that he he breaks through, and and she no, and, and that passage also says that Jesus says, "My sheep know my voice," and so there's this kind of coming together of those two truths in this personal encounter where Jesus calls Mary one of his sheep, and and Mary hears his voice as the good shepherd. Because at that moment, she actually recognizes she recognizes him who, for he who he is. Yeah, yeah. Now, in a sense, here Mary becomes the first Christian 
Why is that? Because she has uh, seen Jesus uh, die on the cross and she's seen him raised from the dead and she believes in those two central truths of Christianity. And, mm. and so that's what it means to be a Christian, someone who believes that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised to new life. Mm. And she's the first one to encounter yes, that's the, right. risen, the risen Lord, so to yeah. speak. Now, do you think it's significant that a woman is the first Christian? Yeah, yes, and not just any woman, but uh, Mary Magdalene. So, so uh, not only is Mary a woman, but if you look in, uh, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 8, it talks about how before uh, Mary started to follow Jesus, uh, she was possessed by seven demons. And uh, it's interesting, no, right, that seven in the Bible means fullness or completeness. So it's actually saying that Mary's life before she started to follow Jesus was completely dominated by evil spiritual forces. Like she was in a mess. Uh, she was, so not only was she a woman, but she was in a mess. Uh, so what's he saying? It's saying that God's kingdom uh, welcomes people who are broken, who are sinful, who are, who are women, who weren't considered as significant in that culture. Mm. Uh, so it's not about your uh, social status or pedigree or your religious performance. Uh, God's kingdom uh, is about grace and people being welcomed because of Christ and what he's done, not because of them and what they've done. Um, so in that way, Mary's encounter with Jesus changed her life? Yeah, absolutely. It seemed to completely transform her life. Mm. Yeah. So what does the resurrection mean to you then, Aaron? So how does your life different as a result? Yeah, I think I alluded to this earlier. Um, for me, uh, the resurrection has, I guess, three, if I can say briefly, three things. Uh, it impacts uh, your view of who Jesus is. So he's not just a good man who was killed on a cross and then the movement petered out. No, he's the risen Lord who rules over all and we're accountable to him. Uh, so who Jesus is, it impacts how you view Jesus' death on the cross. I mean, it's like You could say uh, Jesus' resurrection is like God's stamp of approval on Jesus' death, that Jesus died on the cross uh, to pay off the debt for all our sins, and that's kind of approved by God, uh, by the resurrection. Uh, but it, Jesus' resurrection is also gives hope for the future, mm. uh, hope of eternal life, of a restored bodies, new heavens and new earth. And so um, it has a number of implications. For me, because Jesus is the risen Lord, it means, as I said earlier, uh, that I owe him everything. Uh, and, and so for me, that was a key piece of evidence in me giving myself to full-time uh, gospel ministry. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. What particular aspects of your life does it, is it shape? I think for me, it gives value to the work that I do each day. So if, for example, if in the new creation there's going to be perfect justice, then if you're working for justice now to, to sort of set injustice right, then you're sort of on God's side. Uh, the resurrection is the, the first fruits of that new creation. And, and so I think it gives new purpose and meaning to all sorts of different aspects of your work. Uh, um, so, so that would be a significant mm. thing. Okay. So, Aaron, the resurrection of Jesus, is it really the most remarkable event in world history? I think so. By that criteria that I mentioned earlier, it certainly has far-reaching implications both for individuals and how we live our lives, but uh, for people across the world, it's had great longevity in terms of its impact, uh, great, yeah, the, the extent of it, its impact. So I, I think it is. I mean, there's only one, uh, like um, Muhammad didn't come back from the dead, uh, Buddha didn't come back from the dead, Confucius didn't come back from the dead, uh, but Jesus did. That's very significant. Uh, so I'd say, yep, most remarkable event in history. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, is the resurrection the most remarkable event in history? From John 21:15, He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, 
If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Aaron Boyd. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.